The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Well, I understand that they've designated the whole month of June as Pride Month in order for everybody to celebrate sexual perversion. You know, we got Veterans Day, Mother's Day, Father's Day, but we got Perversion Month. How's that work? Who designated this anyway? Who said this? Who, who, who planned this out? You know, this is troubling in so many ways because in James 4, 6 it says, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The word oppose here is from the Greek word antitasomai, and it means to put on battle array, to range in battle. So this is saying Yahweh stands in battle against the proud. Now think about that. How are you going to fare in battle with Yahweh? The Bible says homosexuality is an abomination to God, and he stands in battle against the proud, he must really be against those who are proud about their sin. If I were to ask you, why are men so sinful? What would your response be? Biblically, what's your explanation? Do what? Okay, fall, the fall of Adam, right? That's, I think that's probably what most people, most people would go to Genesis 3, right? Or Romans 5. Right? Man fell. They blame it on the fall of man. Now, but let me explain this to you. If you were to ask somebody, which you can't do, unless the DeLorean is real, but if if you were to ask somebody in the Second Temple Judaism, the time of Christ, you'd get a very different answer. An answer that probably would surprise most Christians today. Let me give you a quote from Michael Heiser who's a biblical scholar with a Ph.D. in Hebrew and ancient Semitic languages, Heiser says, 99% of Second Temple Judaism believe, now he's referring to the literature there, all right, the literature from Second Temple Judaism, believe that the reason wickedness so permeates the earth is not just an extension and is in large part not even linked to what happened with Adam and Eve, But the reason that people are always and universally thoroughly wicked is because of what the watchers did. Everybody in Paul's circle, everybody in Second Temple Judaism, with the exception of four intertestamental references in intertestamental literature, everything says the reason for the proliferation of evil is the sin of the watchers. Everything. Now that's pretty strong language, right? And most Christians would respond to that by saying, who are the watchers and what did they do? Or or someone would say, well, who cares what Second Temple Judaism has to say anyway? Well, let me just say this. Second Temple Judaism is the context of the Bible. That's where our New Testament comes from, out of Second Temple Judaism. And how those people thought in their literature, that's where the Bible comes from. So that is the context. So we should care a little bit about 
what this is about. Like I said, most people would say, who are these watchers? So to get a picture of who these watchers are and what they did, we're going to turn to Genesis 6. And just look at these first four verses. Now, if you want to have some fun this week, go to some Christians that you know and you know, take them Genesis 6 and let them read these four verses and say, what do you think these mean? What is this about? What's happening here? I mean, you've got to admit, it's a little bit strange, right? When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, they saw that the daughters of men were attractive. Okay, so we got angels checking us out. You know, hey, that's a pretty woman. That's a pretty woman down there. I'm like, really? And they took as their wives any they chose. Then Yahweh said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for, his, it, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. Now this is, without a doubt, a strange passage. And there's a lot of disagreement, like there is on so many passages, over this. So let me begin by giving you a quote from Edmund Spencer. Spencer says this, There's a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all argument, and which cannot fail to keep man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is this, condemnation before investigation. Just condemn it before you even hear it or understand it, you know. Yeah, I don't believe that, just condemn it. All right, so let's attempt to keep an open mind as we look at this text this morning. There are three major interpretations. There's others, but there's three major interpretations of this text in Genesis 1. Two of them are just natural. They try to explain it in a natural way. One of them is supernatural. We're going to start with the least likely, in my, in my mind, the Sethite view, and end with the Watcher view, which to me is the only way to interpret this text. So, those who hold this view, the Sethite view, they say the sons of God here, are those from the line of Seth, which they say was a godly line. Okay, you're stretching it right off the beginning. Okay, we got a line of Seth is all godly. And the daughters of men, they refer to women from the line of Cain, which they say is ungodly. They see the Nephilim as the product of this union of the lines between Seth and Cain. Now this non-supernatural view of the sons of God as human beings began in the Christian world with Julius Africanus. And it gripped the Western church through the support of Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Aquinas. They all jumped on this Sethite view. This is what they thought made sense to them. Julius Africanus states the principle this way. He says, The descendants of Seth are called the sons of God. No, they are not on account of the righteous men and patriarchs who have sprung from him, even down to the Savior himself, but that the descendants of Cain are named the seed of men, as having nothing divine in them on account of the wickedness of the race and the inequity of their nature, being a mixed people and having stirred the indignation of God. Now, the supporters of this view strangely rely predominantly on one verse in Genesis 4.26. It says, To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of Yahweh. 
Now, the supporters for this Sethite interpretation, they say that the picture here is that, in context, Seth's line began to call upon Yahweh. But the Hebrew text of this verse doesn't say that at all. Okay? It says, at that time, people began to call on the name of Yahweh. It's a general calling. It doesn't say that Seth's line began to do that. Now, what's interesting here is the Jewish Targum interpreted the Hebrew behind began to call on the name of Yahweh as actually meaning this. Here's how they translate it. Began to make idols and calling their idols the name of Yahweh. <laughs> you see a little difference there? Crazy, right? This is completely opposite of what they're trying to say it means. And Brown Driver Briggs in their lexicon revealed that the word began here, which is the Hebrew word halal, can mean pollute, defile, profane, or desecrate. So if you claim that the context of Genesis 4.26 is Sethite, then those Sethites were not considered righteous, they're wicked. But whether this was a profaning or a calling on the name of Yahweh, the text doesn't link it exclusively to Seth's line, but to people in general. The problems with this view are multiple. First of all, the contrast between the godly line of Seth and the ungodly line of Cain is way overemphasized. The line of Seth as a whole was not godly. You get the impression from the Scripture that there were very few godly people in these days. Who ended up on that ark? Okay, how many people? Eight. Okay, so it seems like Noah and his family could be called righteous. There are not a lot of other righteous people during this time. All right? Also, all the names given in the Canaanite genealogy in Genesis 5, they're also, they're also found in the Sethite genealogy of the same chapter. I thought it was something I said. <laughs> the genealogies overlap. So the lines are different. And the Sethite view implies that all women of Cain's line were ungodly. And we know that's not true, right? whereas all the men of Seth's line were godly. It's just a huge stretch. <clears throat> Secondly, this interpretation doesn't come from within the text. Nowhere are the Sethites called sons of God. In fact, every single use of sons of God elsewhere in the talk is always a reference to spirit beings. Hang on to that thought. Seth is never called a son of God. In the Tanakh, his birth is uniquely described this way. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. So Seth is distinctly described in terms of being a son of Adam, not a son of God. And we'll talk more about sons of God here in a minute. But thirdly, the daughters of men can hardly be restricted to only the daughters of the Canaanites in Genesis 6. Because Moses wrote this. Now, the Sethite view requires giving the word man, which is Adam, in verse 1 and 2, two different meanings. Men and daughters in verse 1 would refer to all mankind and their daughters, but daughters of men in verse 2 would refer only to Canaanite women. Canaanite women. So the term Adam would have to mean mankind in 6.1, 
but a specific group of humans, the Canaanites, in Genesis 6 too. It's just, like I said, it's kind of ridiculous. It's difficult to conclude that the men here are not just men in general or mankind, because it would follow that the reference to the daughters of men would be general. <coughs> Excuse me. So to conclude that the daughters of men in verse 2 is some different, more restrictive group is to ignore the context of the passage. Daughters of men are simply women. Daughters of Adam include the bloodlines of both Cain and Seth. So for the contrast of sons of God and daughters of men to make sense, the sons of God can't be a reference to human lineage of Cain, but a lineage of something that contrasts with human beings in general. Then in verse 4 it says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Sons of God came into the daughters of men. So, how does a human-human relationship, you got two different lines, produce Nephilim, which elsewhere in the Bible refers to giants? So you got a line of Cain, a line of Seth, and they get together, and now you got giants. Mighty men, Gibberim. They're supposed to be the offspring of these people? Klein states this, It is not at all clear why the offspring of religious, religiously mixed marriages should be Nephilim, Gibberim. However, these be understood within the range of feasible interpretation. But his, the biblical author's reference to the conjugal act of the childbearing, finds justification only if he is describing the origin of the Nephilim, Gibberim. Unless the difficulty which follows from the conclusion can be overcome, the religiously mixed marriage interpretation of the passage ought to be definitely abandoned. I agree with Klein there. Fifthly, to hold the Sethite view, you also have to believe that Peter and Jude got it wrong. Because they're going to talk about this. And they're not talking about two different lines of Seth and Cain. So <clears throat> we'll expound on that shortly. But for these reasons, and we could go on with others, I see this as exegetically unacceptable. It's just a way to do away with the supernatural and just say, okay, these are two lines and... Again, it just it falls apart very quickly. All right, the second view I want to look at is called the despot view. To me, this is just as dumb. Um, you know, <coughs> maybe I'm biased. <coughs> I don't know. But the earliest date for this view is mid-2nd century A.D. The view developed in rejection of the idea that angels could engage in sexual intercourse. So they said, that can't happen, so we've got to come up with another view. Recognizing the deficiencies of the Sethite view, some scholars have sought to define the expression sons of God by comparing it with the language of the ancient Near East. And it's interesting to learn that some rulers were identified as the son of a particular god. For example, in Egypt, their god, the sun god, was Ra. He was the son, and so the king was the son of Ra. And that's a lot of these kings saw themselves as gods, all right? Now, as a major proponent of this view, Meredith Klein suggests that the union of sons of God with daughters of men was the polygamous marriages of tyrant kings. That's their interpretation. Sons of God is a king who's polygamous. Klein says, the last of Cain's line mentioned before this event is Lamech, who was a bigamist and a tyrant. 
The first Gibberim on the earth after the flood was Nimrod, another tyrant who was connected to that idolatrous city, the Tower of Babel. The sin of the sons of God was polygamy. Really? In this transgression, the sons of God flagrantly violated the sacred trust of their office as guardians of the general ordinance of God for human conduct. The princes born to these royal houses of the sons of God were the Nephilim Gibberine, the mighty tyrants who Lamech-like esteemed their might to be their right. So, while it's true that ancient pagan kings did consider themselves the offspring of deity, or demigods, nowhere in the Bible is the term sons of God used in reference to rulers, kings, outside this passage. And, and this passage is not talking about it either, but they try to say it is here, but it's nowhere else used that way. The definition chooses to ignore the phrase, the precise definition that the Scripture itself gives of who sons of God are. Now this text is, is not saying that polygamy is a heinous sin that inherently breeds monsters of tyranny and cause God to destroy the world. Okay, David was a polygamist. He gave birth to both good and bad seed through his wives, as did Solomon. You think, would you consider Solomon a polygamist? I mean, he only had a thousand wives, so I don't know if that's counter. I don't know if you can count that or not. That would, that would be hyper-polygamy, wouldn't it? <laughs> I don't know what you'd call that. The whole idea of power-hungry men seeking to establish the dynasty by acquisition of, of a harem seems forced on the passage. I mean, who would ever find this idea in this text unless you imposed it on there? But again, they're trying to get away from a supernatural view, so let's come up with something. And this view doesn't define the daughters of men correctly as womankind, and not just, well, it does define the daughters of women correctly as just womankind instead of just daughters of the of Canaanite line. And of course, daughters come from men. Where else would they come from? This is, there's no need to say that men were giving birth to daughters unless the point of contrast is their identity as human. So the major weakness of this view is its inability to account for the unusual offspring, again, the Nephilim, all right? Why would kings having sex with multiple women, polygamists, polygamists, produce giants? While the despot view does maybe less violence to the text than the Canaanite Sethite view, it seems to be very inadequate. So let, let's go to the final one here, the watcher's view, which to me may seem really strange to us, but biblically makes the most sense. Now according to this view, the sons of God, of verses 2 and 4, are rebellious divine beings from God's heavenly host called watchers, which have taken the form of masculine, human-like creatures. These gods came to earth, they married women of the human race, either Canaanite or Sethite, and they violated the heavenly earthly division that Yahweh had established. And the hybrid offspring of these abominable, this abominable union was giants because they're half God, half men. They're called Nephilim. Nephilim were giants 
with physical superiority. And therefore they establish themselves as men of renown for their physical power, their military might. This race of half-human creatures was wiped out by the flood, along with mankind in general, who were sinners of their own right. Now my basic presupposition in approaching our text is that we should let the Bible define its own terms. Scripture is to interpret Scripture. So we've got to find out what the Scripture says about sons of God. If a biblical definition can't be found, then we look at the language of the culture of the contemporary peoples. But the Bible does define the term sons of God for us. Chapter 1 and 2 of the book of Job uh, show us two instances of the divine council composed of the sons of God, which is the Ben Elohim, gathering in heaven for a meeting of the council. Job 1.6, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh, and Satan came with them. So we know Satan is a divine being, so these sons of God, they're a divine being, they're all coming to kind of answer to God. And we see the same thing in Job 2.1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh. And Satan also came along with them to present himself before Yahweh. So again, you've got these sons of God, this group of divine individuals coming before God. Satan is with them. Now, if we go to Job 38, it says this. Here, the Lord is chastening Job. He's just really giving Job what for for his attitude. And he asked Job, he says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me! If you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Oh, surely you know. In other words, you're questioning me. You must understand all this stuff. You know, right? Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Now, morning stars here and sons of God are names of divine council members. Morning stars are divine beings. Sons of God are divine beings. Now, some folks want to say that sons of God are humans. How were humans here at creation? When when creation took place, they were there. And they were shouting for joy as creation took place. You can't really explain that as human beings. This term, sons of God, is only found five times in the New American Standard Bible, twice in Genesis 6, three times in Job, but it's found an additional time time in the English Standard Version, which says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. Now, the English translations based on the translation of the Hebrew text of the Tanakh read sons of Israel here instead of sons of God. But this variant reading, sons of God, came by using the 3rd century BCE translation of the Septuagint as well as Hebrew manuscripts of Deuteronomy that they found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. So there was more information for this translation, and they translated this as sons of God. Now, if you go back to Genesis chapter 10, you have the table of nations. And that's the backdrop for Deuteronomy 32.8 here. And the statement where Yahweh is responsible for the creation and the placement of the nations. See, 
mankind was divided into 70 different nations at the Tower of Babel. God gave them different languages. He spread them out. And it's important to note that Israel is not listed in the 70 nations found in Genesis 10. Why is Israel not listed in that genealogy or those nations that are there? They didn't exist. Okay, so you can't put them in there. So it's really dumb to have sons of Israel there when Israel didn't exist at that time. Okay, Israel doesn't come into existence until chapter 12 when God gets done with the nation, says, I'm sick of you, your people are making me sick. Take these gods, you serve those gods, I'm starting all over. And he created, called Abraham and created Israel. It didn't exist, so it can't be part of it. Now the phrase sons of God here is from the Hebrew, B'nai Elohim. Elohim is the plural of God. El is God. Elohim is the plural, but it's what grammarians call a morphological plural. Okay, that's like our word dear. Is it plural or is it singular? Okay, you can only tell by the context. That's Elohim. When a Hebrew word has an I-M ending, that makes it plural. So we have El, we have Elohim. Usually you'll see Elohim, but it doesn't always mean that it's a plural. It's singular. It's used of God, okay? Now listen to this. This is really important that you understand that. All uses of Elohim in the Tanakh, bar none, every single use of Elohim refers to spiritual beings. Men are never called Elohim unless they're dead. Because they go into the spirit world. Okay? So, you only have one man in Scripture called Elohim. That's Samuel. Because... He's dead. And Saul calls him up. This witch of Endor calls him up. And she says, I see Elohim. He's a spirit being because he's coming up from the dead. He's not part of that world anymore. So it's only used to those in the spiritual world. So important to understand. Um, when I first saw this, Heiser had made some mention of this. And so I wrote him and I said, you know, I, I kind of challenged him. I said, there's a couple texts here I think you're wrong about. And he got back to me. We went back and forth a little bit. And I was like, oh, I think you're right. So I went through every use of Elohim in the Scripture, and, okay, they're, ta they're talking about spirit beings. Heiser says this. He says, Elohim is a place of residence locator. So if it says they're an Elohim, they're not in this, of this world. They're spirit beings. They live in a divine realm that's not part of this realm. Okay? It's only used of those in the spirit world. It's so important that we understand that. And it's, it's weird, because some Bibles will take the word Elohim and translate it as judges and try to make it be human judges, okay? It's just, it's wrong on so many levels. It just doesn't work, okay? In Daniel 4, the sons of God are called watchers. Now, the non-canonical book of 1 Enoch has a lot to say about these fallen watchers and their sin of cohabitation and their judgment. So let's look at Enoch, Enoch 6, 1 through 3. See if this sounds familiar to you. And it came to pass when the children of men had multiplied, that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters. And the angels, the children of heaven, saw and lusted after them, and said to one another, Come, let's choose us wives from among the children of men, and beget us children. Does that sound familiar? Sound like the text in Genesis 6 we just read? Okay, but notice it says here, angels, children of the heavens, 
So it's making it real clear you're not messing up on who these people are. Let's go to Enoch 7. And all the others together with them took unto themselves wives. And each chose for himself one. So they're all picking out wives. And they began to go in unto them and defile themselves with them. Now watch, this is important. I want you to catch this here. And they taught them charms and enchantments and the cutting of roots and made them acquainted with plants. So these watchers, these divine beings are teaching humans something they shouldn't be teaching them. We'll see that in a minute in another text that uh, Enoch brings out. And they became pregnant, and they bear great giants. So again, he's saying, okay, these, they had these children, they're teaching them things they shouldn't, they, the women got pregnant, and they're having giants. The text goes on, whose height was 3,000 L's, who consumed all the acquisition of men, and when men could no longer sustain them, the giants turned against them and devoured <coughs> excuse me, devoured mankind. Uh, and they began to sin against birds and beasts and reptiles and fish, and to devour one another's flesh and to drink the blood. Then the earth laid acquisition against the lawless ones. All right, let's look at uh, chapter 9, verses 8 through 10. Oh, hot coffee, yes. And they have gone to the daughters of men upon the earth and have slept with the women and have defiled themselves and revealed to them all kinds of sins. That's what we just talked about. Are there, there, these, and this is why Second Temple Judaism blamed the sin of mankind on the watchers, on the fall, because they're saying, all right, these divine beings are teaching men all kinds of sins. And the women gave birth, birth to, were born giants, and the whole earth has thereby been filled with the blood and unrighteousness. All right, so the sons of God are spirit beings who came to earth, mated with human women, and produced hybrid offspring, which Yahweh destroyed in the flood. Now, Genesis never specifies how many angels descended, what their names were, or where exactly they arrived when they, they descended to the earth. But the book of Watchers fills all these narrative gaps for us. It states that there were 200 angels that came. It gives us the names of the 20 chiefs that were over these angels. It asserts that they arrived to earth from heaven on Mount Hermon, which is fitting sight because it's the highest mountain in Palestine. And uh, thus the closest to heaven. So they picked the closest spot. Let's go. Robert Newman has analyzed the history of interpretation of this passage to show that the supernatural interpretation of the sons of God as being heavenly angelic beings was virtually unanimous in the ancient world until the first century after Christ. So this is the view everybody held to in the beginning. It was the dominant view among Jewish and Christian thinkers until after the 4th century A.D. when Augustine was championing the Sethite view. It was also the exclusive view until the mid-2nd century. It appears in early Jewish works that comment on the stories of Genesis 6, uh, 1 Enoch, Jubilees 5, 
The Septuagint talks about it, Philo talks about it, Josephus, the Dead Sea Scrolls have it in there, as well as the works of early Christian scholars such as Justin, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexander, Tertullian, and Origen. So this was the predominant, this was the only view, all right, until <clears throat> the late first century. Many commentators say that what happened here was rape, and they took as the wives any they chose, okay? Well, first of all, that's just ignorant, okay? Because just do a little work here and you'll figure out it's not has nothing to do with rape, all right? The word took here is the Hebrew word laha. Laha is used in other places in the Tanakh of proper, respectable marriages. Whatever happened here was consensual, it wasn't rape. All right, for example, Genesis 25.1, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. Same word, okay? Lacha. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah. Same word, Lacha. These are the same Hebrew word. They took their wives. It has nothing to do with, you know, taking them by force or raping them or any such thing as that. The daughters of men were not raped or seduced as such. They simply chose husbands on the same basis that the watchers selected them. Physical appeal. Now, ladies, if you're eligible in those days, who are you going to choose? A god or a man? <laughs> you got this puny guy over here, and you're like, hey, well, there's a god over here. I'll, yeah, I'll be your wife, sure. You would feel secure, protected, right? I mean, this guy's going to take care of you. He comes right from heaven. He knows some stuff. So these divine beings came to earth, they married women, and they had children. And the children, again, are half deity, half humanity. Okay, They're a mixed race, they're a hybrid beings. And Enoch teaches us that when these hybrid beings died, the man part died, the spirit didn't die, the divine part, so the divine part is where demons come from. They were the demons, they were left, they didn't die because they're God, so they stayed around. <clears throat> if you're wondering where demons came from. When we find angels described in the book of Genesis, it's really clear that they assume human-like form, and they are always men. Okay? Despite what your Christmas decorations tell you, despite what the greeting cards tell you, angels always appear as men. They're always masculine. And there are many examples in scriptures of angels taking on physical form. In Genesis 18, God and some angels show up and they have a meal. They didn't need to eat because they're spirit beings. The writer of Hebrews mentions that angels can be entertained without man's knowing it, Hebrews 13 too, because they look just like men. Surely angels must be convincingly look like men because the homosexual at Sodom wanted to have sex with them. They were attracted to the male angels who came to destroy the city. Now, in the New Testament, two passages seem to refer to this incident in Genesis 6, which, again, strongly supports the supernatural view and the watcher view. And that is Jude 1, 6-7. Jude says that angels who did not keep their own domain but abandon their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them 
since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, and exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So here we see that angels abandon their proper abode. The word abode here is the Greek word oiketerion, and it means residence. They left heaven, that's where they lived, that was their residence. They left there, they abandoned it. And because of this, they were judged. That fits in with Genesis 6, and what he's saying. Now, he says, since they in the same way as these indulge in, indulge in gross immorality. Does these refer to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? Or does it refer to the angels? See, if it goes back to the angels, then he's linking their sin, the angels' sin, to a sexual sin, and that happened in Genesis 6. Now, grammar tells us that it goes back to the angels. Angels, due to gender and number agreement, that's why we're going back to angels. Your pronouns need to agree with gender, number, and case with their antecedent. And the word these is from the Greek haute, which is masculine plural, and angels is masculine plural, but cities is feminine and doesn't match grammatically. So, all right, what happened? What was the sin of these angels? Whatever happened, it had to be something that the people that Jude is writing to knew about. Because he's reminding them, he tells them, of these things. So we have to assume then, it's very likely that it was something that was in the Tanakh, since the story of the defection of Israel in verse 5 of this book, and the story of the defection of Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7, that's in the Scripture. We can assume that the story of the angels' sin is also in Scripture. It was something they were familiar with. So whatever we're dealing with here, we're dealing with something that's in the Tanakh. And I believe that Jude reflects the ancient Jewish and Christian understanding that identifies these fallen angels as rebellious sons of God, in Genesis 6. And Peter confirms this. Peter says, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them into pits of darkness, reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example of those who would live ungodly lives hereafter. See, both these passages, Jude and Peter, they speak of the same angels who sinned before the flood and who were committed to chains of darkness. 1 Peter 3.19 calls these imprisoned angels disobedient. So according to our study, the angelic sons of God are spoken of as sinning in Genesis 6. So these must be the same angels referred to by the authors of the New Testament. But just what is their sin? Well, both Peter and Jude link the sin of those fallen angels with the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is described as indulging in gross immorality by pursuing strange flesh. Now, the Greek word here for gross immorality is expornuo. It's got the word porn right in it, okay? Expornuo. And it indicates a heightened form of sexual immorality. 
And the Greek word for strange flesh here is heteros sarx, which indicates the pursuit of something different from one's natural flesh. So this strange flesh cannot be a reference to homosexuality for several reasons. First, homosexuality is not the pursuit of hetero or different gender. It's the pursuit of homo or the same gender. Secondly, homosexual behavior involves the same human male flesh, not different flesh, as would be with angels. And thirdly, when the New Testament refers to the unnaturalness of homosexual acts, it uses the Greek phrase paraphusin, which means contrary to nature. Now, there's no doubt the Bible condemns homosexuality as sin. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. But the sin of Sodom that is referenced by Jude and Peter is not homosexuality. It's interspecies sexuality between angels and humans. So the New Testament commentary on Genesis 6, 1-4 affirms the supernatural view of the sons of God as having sex with humans. The letter of Jude not only quotes a verse from 1 Enoch, First uh, Enoch 1, 9, but Jude 6 and 7 and 2 Peter 2, 4 through 10 both paraphrase from 1 Enoch, thus supporting the notion that the inspired authors intended an Enochian interpretation of angels called the watchers or sons of God having sexual intercourse with humans. So Jude and Peter are alluding to the common understanding of their culture that the angelic sin and its hybrid fruit of giants was an unnatural sexual violation of the human separation, the human divine separation. Now, when we get to verse 4, he talks about the Nephilim. This is the result of the union between the fallen watchers and the women. And it's clearly implied... That's what happened. They produced Nephilim. Now, the meaning of the biblical word Nephilim, the Hebrew here is Nephil. That's what the word, the Hebrew word is, Nephil. And the understanding or the interpretation of this has been a controversy all through church history. The word Nephilim is not a translation of, into English. It's a transliteration in most Bible translations because they just don't know even how to translate it. They're not, what does this word mean? They don't know. While word studies have produced numerous suggestions for meaning of the term, the biblical definition of this word comes from its only other use in Scripture. So Nephilim's only used here in Genesis 6-4 and Numbers 13-33. And there we saw Nephilim. The spies went out to spy out the land. They come back. How's the land? The land's good, but we saw the Nephilim there, the sons of Anak, who come from Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. So just by reading that text, what would you think of the Nephilim? They're kind of big. <laughs> I mean, we look like grasshoppers. These are some big dudes over there. The land is good, but I think they're a little too big for us. We don't, we don't even want to mess with this. You know, this is so clear that the Nephilim were a race of super giants. You know, that's what happened, you know, with the, from this angelic invasion. Now, the, these two passages, Numbers and uh, Genesis, are the only two places where the Hebrew Bible, where you find the word Nephilim used. But I think what surprises a lot of Bible readers is this is not the only places where Nephilim are talked about in Scripture. 
Nephilim has a theological thread that begins in Genesis 6 and goes all the way through to the New Testament. And some say that the Nephilim were simply mighty warriors who happened to be around during those times and after the incident. You know, they just happened to be there. There's no connection with the text at all, which is really foolish. This view makes nonsense of the text by inserting something Nephilim that has no connection to what's even being talked about, namely the sexual unions before the flood. Now, the pericope of verses 1 through 4 are a lead up to the proclamation of the flood in verses 5 through 8. And the contextual reading of this concise unit of text begins talking about a sexual union of the sons of God with daughters of men. Then it makes a reference to God's announcement to destroy the world in 120 years, which then references the Nephilim in context with that judgment, and then bookends the pericope with a reference back to supernatural sexual union again, thus linking everything in those bookends as a parenthetical explanation of what it's all about, which leads us to the flood of verse 5 through 8. So what does the Hebrew word Nephilim mean? Well, some scholars looking at the root word claim it means fallen ones. Because that's what the Hebrew means. To fall. But there's a problem, and that is that the Septuagint, which is often quoted by New Testament authors as authoritative, translates this word as giants. So we have to ask, well, did those ancient Hellenized Jews not know the true meaning of the word? Or did they know something that we don't? See, most of the ancient Jewish sources understand this term to mean giant. There are some Second Temple Jewish texts that tell us that these were giants. Jubilees 5.1 says, And when the children of men began to multiply on the surface of the earth, and daughters were born to them, and the angels of Yahweh saw it. I mean, again, you see this idea. They're angels. Sounds just like Genesis 6. They were good to look at. And they took wives for them from all those they chose. And they bore children for them. And they were the giants. Again, this is Second Temple literature. This was the culture of the Bible. Josephus writes this in Antiquities 173. For many angels of God accompanied with women and begat sons that provided unjust and despisers of all that was good on account of the confidence they had in their own strength. For the tradition is that these men did what resembled the acts of those who the Grecians called giants. Now, again, biblical and A&E scholar Michael Heiser has revealed a biblical reference that proves that the Nephilim are giants, not fallen ones. He wrote an article called The Meaning of the Word Nephilim, Fact or Fantasy, and he explains that the Hebrew is a consonantal language, which means it only spells words with consonants and leaves the reader to fill in the vowels. Well, the ancient language of Aramaic is also consonantal and has an influence on the Hebrew text at various places. There are many Aramaic words in the Bible. Some chapters, such as Daniel chapter 2 through 7, are written in Aramaic. In later copies, vowel makers added to the consonants in order to aid the pronunciation. Then Heiser explains that the word Nephilim, Nephal, which is translated into English as Nephilim, has different meanings depending on the morphology or form of the word. Evidently, the morphological form of the word in Genesis 
and numbers is not that of the Hebrew meaning fallen ones, but that of the Aramaic meaning giants. And the, the Bible clinches this argument in Numbers 13, 33 here. And Heiser shows that the first spelling of Nephilim here is from the Hebrew spelling, but the second spelling of Nephilim is a variation that is clearly the Aramaic spelling of giants. And should there really be any question when the text goes on to describe these Anakim, who are descendants from the Nephilim, as being gigantic in stature, so they felt like a grasshopper. I mean, that text just tells us what's going on. Now, the Anakim, or the sons of Anak, are unquestionably defined as giants throughout the Bible because of their tall height. One of the most famous of the Anakim was Goliath. You all know about him, right? Goliath is said to have stood nine feet, nine inches tall. Would you consider that a giant? I've heard stories of Nephilim much taller than that. Okay, so we don't really know. But, you know, just for Goliath, it says his coat of mail alone weighed 125 pounds. And the weight of his spearhead was 15 pounds. Now, that's, a, that's just the tip of the spear, 15 pounds. This has special meaning to me because last week I was at Home Depot and I was looking at sledgehammers and I looked at a 14-pound sledge. And I mean, I picked that thing up and I'm like, oh, this could do some damage. I mean, the head on that thing was this big, 14 pounds. So a 15-pound spear, yeah, you wouldn't have a lot of chance against something like that. Okay, this is a big guy. Now, this text seems to blame humanity for the flood. When, I mean, when we look at the scripture here in Genesis 6, 5, it says, Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So it seems like, okay, that's, it's man's fault that the flood came, right? But Enoch says the flood was sent because of the watchers. So is there a conflict here? Well, the voluntary sexual transgressions of the women with the watchers was a violation of heaven and earth which caused the humans to share the blame and therefore be judged by it. The wickedness of men was their sexual union with the gods. Now, if one of the main purposes of the flood was to wipe out this hybrid race, then why do we see giants after the fall? Look at the text. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. Uh-oh, what happened? They escaped the flood and didn't get drowned or what? Well, yeah, that's exactly true. The, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, they wanted to have sex with angels. Okay? Did, did they know that? I don't, I don't know. Okay? But let's look at this, because you know, a lot of people want to say, well, what is this afterwards? How, how, why is it also afterwards? Is this referring to after the flood? Well, the Hebrew word, the Hebrew verb here, bo, came in, is a euphemism for sexual relations. And the verb is in the imperfect form, which donates, which denotes uncompleted, ongoing action. So the ensuing verb, bore children, is in a construction known as narrative sequence, meaning it carries the same action as the preceding verb. So to answer the question, how do you get giants after the flood, the grammar indicates the activity that created the giants was ongoing. In other words, the angels didn't just do this once. I mean, which is really dumb because the first ones got judged and they're, let's go, let's us do that. These women must have been really attractive because these guys are leaving heaven like crazy, okay? 
<clears throat> this is why, <clears throat> and this is, you know, I'm always encouraging people to read your Bible. Read your Bible. You need to read your Bible through cover to cover every year. It's just, you, you know, you're never going to have a good relationship with God if you don't know the Word of God. And inevitably, when someone begins to read their Bible for the first time, they get blown away by God's killing everybody. Everybody, go wipe them out, children, babies, kill everybody. And you're like, oh, this is horrible. What's going on? God is wiping out the Nephilim. Okay, that's the whole point. He's getting rid of this hybrid race. They're destroying it. Notice what Yahweh says in the Olivet Discourse. It says, for as it was in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So during the time that Christ was on the earth, there's a lot of demonic activity, just like in Noah's day. <clears throat> so why, why did they do this anyways? It's just women were so powerfully attractive, they just couldn't stand it, and they had to leave heaven. Well, <clears throat> I think that since, since God created man, God had a family before he created man, okay? He had the divine council. He had his heavenly family. He dwelt in Eden with his family, and everything was wonderful. And then God decided, I'm going to create man. I'm going to bring man into the fellowship. Well, the watchers didn't like it. They said, wait a minute. Who's this? We don't want them puny man in our fellowship and part of our family. And so Satan says, I'll take care of it. I'll get him kicked out. So he tempts... <laughs> A lady at the wedding yesterday, I saw a snake over there. Oh, I get so, you know, and she quotes some Bible reverence. I said, listen, as long as he's not talking to you, you're okay, okay? <laughs> if he starts talking to you, get out of there really quick, okay? So, you know, this is not a snake in Genesis. It's a serpent, which is a shining being. This is a luminescent being. It's a divine being. It's a watcher. And he's tempting Adam and Eve. And he gets them to sin, so God kicks them out of the garden. And they're like, yeah, cool, we got it kicked out. It's good. We're good. Well, then, in Genesis 3, God says, no, I'm going to make a plan. I'm going to put, and we have the proto-evangelum where God says, I'm going to send a woman. She's going to bear a child, the seed of the woman, you know, and the whole thing. And so the watcher's like, oh, no, now what do we do? I got an idea. Let's go down there and corrupt the human race. We'll, we'll, we'll corrupt it so the Savior can't come through the race because it'll be a mixed race and they won't be able to do it. So that was the whole part. And the flood and the holy wars that David launched, they wiped out this hybrid race. And then the God-man, Yeshua, came and provided redemption to his elect. But see, the whole thing was to stop God from bringing man back in. Everything was to prevent redemption. And that's why when redemption happened, when it's complete, it's over. And these beings got no more plays. It's done. And so God shut them all down in AD 70, destroyed all these, you know, the demons that were left, destroyed all these gods that were rebellious, wiped them out, and it's over. They have no more play. Redemption is complete. It's okay. Man is good with God. So this is a strange story, I realize that. But I, I don't see any natural way to deal with this text honestly. Okay, now if it seems really strange to you, it is strange. Alright? Very strange to us. But I'll tell you what, I think understanding God's leaving heaven explains a lot of things on earth that can't be explained by man. Okay? 
a lot of buildings that are done, a lot of things that are, you know, engineers today say we can build the pyramids if we wanted to, we just can't do that. You see some of these old ancient building sites, you can't fit a sheet of paper in between the blocks, and they, how did, you know, 20 ton blocks, how'd they do this? How'd they put these in place? I think a lot of things can't be explained. It's not ancient aliens. It's watchers. <laughs> no aliens, watchers, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us, Lord. Uh, Father, some things are difficult for us to understand. Lord, I pray you'd give us a, a worldview when it comes to Scripture. We take all of Scripture, put it together, and understand what you've called us to do and who we are in your sight. Lord, I thank you that you, through the flood, through David, wiped out this hybrid race that your son could come to die for us, to bring us back into your fellowship. Thank you, Lord, for your constant grace to us. We love you. Amen. Questions, comments? <clears throat> Gary? It just struck me today when you were reading from Genesis. Cat. 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 You grab my phone. Um, how, the, how the washers were attracted to women. They weren't attracted to men. Yeah. So. They had it straight, I guess. Uh, you know, anyway. Well, they'd have a hard time producing offspring with men. <laughs> Now that's something that the uh, LGBT community, I guess, doesn't get too well. But, you know, that, that ends the human race, okay? <clears throat> it takes a man and a woman to keep this thing going. <clears throat> oh, man. Yes, John. Well, that's Enoch. Enoch, one of the books of Enoch is called the Book of Watchers. The Book of Enoch is divided up into several sections. And I forget what section that is, but it's, it's called the Book of the Watchers. And, you know... You know, people, if you haven't read Enoch, it's, it's very interesting reading. Um, and like I said, when you have biblical writers quoting these, that means something, okay? I don't, think it's, I don't think it should have been in the Scripture. There's some things there that contradict, actually, what Scripture says. But this was in their mind, and they understood this. And when it came to this particular subject, they seemed to have been on the same page, so... Yes? Did you say demons were the offspring of the Nephilim? No, the Nephilim themselves, when the Nephilim were half men, half God. When they died, because the divine part is divine, it didn't die. That were the, that's where the demons came from, okay? They're disembodied spirits who were Nephilim. At least that's what Enoch teaches us, okay? Which I don't know of any understanding we even have of that, you know, other than that. Yes, they sure did. They knew who he was, didn't they? If the Watchers were giants because they were half God and half man, is Yeshua an even bigger giant since he is fully God and fully man? <laughs> and him being fully man cancel out some of the physical size, even though he's also fully God? Oh, come on. <laughs> what? Yeah, the Watchers weren't giants. Their offspring was giants, okay? So well, well, that same, but he's a he's the offspring of God and man. You know, he's the God man. He was 100% fully God, 100% fully man. There's nobody ever been or ever will be 
like the God-man. Okay, that's why he's different. These were half God, half men. He's fully God, fully men. And he had to be God to die for our sins, and he had to be man to die for our sins. So that's, uh, no, he wasn't a giant. He was a, a normal man that everybody, most people missed it altogether. Yes? So does that mean that there's no demonic activity anymore? I don't believe there is, no. My position is all demonic influence were wiped out. Now, I know there's a lot of controversy about this. I just think that's, you know, in the all of the discourse, it talks about the stars falling from heaven at the war. Those stars are divine beings. That's what it's talking about, wiping out the divine beings. And I don't think the demonic presence, again, because the purpose of all that was to stop redemption. Once redemption is complete, they don't, they don't have a play anymore. So I don't, I know a lot of people will argue, there's demons. And I'm like, yeah, you know your relatives better than I do. But <laughs> <laughs> Yes. So would you agree with Michael Heiser that says the reason why we have sin is three different times in the Bible, three different rebellions. You got the fall in uh, Genesis one. You've got the table Genesis of nations. Three. Genesis three. The Genesis fall. three. So yeah. The table of nations. Genesis eleven. Yeah. And Deuteronomy thirty-two. Yeah. As well as Genesis six. Well, yeah, I, I think those three things: uh, the the fall of man in Genesis three, the demonic incursion where God's left heaven in Genesis six, and then you have the Tower of Babel. You know, these three things. They say they blame this. And Heiser would put all three of those categories in the reason. I think the main thing is man fell, okay? I think the reason these women were marrying angels because they were fallen beings. We, the fall had already taken place. The Bible puts the emphasis on the fall. Genesis, I mean, uh, Romans 5, you know, puts it on Adam, puts it on the fall. But I can understand why they did because it, you read those, those texts, you know, they're teaching mankind to sin. And you wonder, what do we know that we shouldn't know because the watchers taught us things we shouldn't know, you know. I, I don't know. I don't know, you know. But it, it it's, you can understand where they got their where, where they got their idea from. Uh, it says a question from someone on the group chat who cannot text. <clears throat> Please address Romans eight nineteen. The creation waits in er, er, eager expectation for the revelation of the sons of God. <clears throat> okay, sons of God there, and that to, if that's what you're referencing to, is B'nai Elohim, and that is a reference to Christians in that text, all right? That the creation grows. That's not talking about the physical creation, all right? Groaning like, you know, sticks and dirt and bugs are having a hard time because of that, all right? It's talking about the new creation of the children of God, and they're waiting to be revealed from heaven. In other words, the Jews are saying, we're God's children, and God's saying, no, now the Christians are my children. If you haven't trusted Christ, you are not my child anymore. And he's going to reveal who the sons of God were. Once Jerusalem was destroyed, God made a clear revelation. You're not my people. Christians are my people. And all the things, the names the Jews used to have and things God called the Jews, he now calls the Christians because we are the people of God. So sons of God there is referred to us. We are sons of God. But we're talking about strictly from the Hebrew and the B'nai Elohim what their reference was. See, we are now part of that divine council. We joined in that family of God and are His eternal family. Okay, so I, I'm reading this backwards, which maybe it says, Good morning, the Nephilim 
was said to be also from the sons of Anak, a tribe of the giant people in Canaan. There must be some kind of line of them that has some type of remnants because we have many people from all races today that are anywhere from six to seven and eight feet tall. Well, there's big people, but no, these are not, again, it's not just that they're tall. That's not the only issue, okay? Um, they're half men, half God, okay? That's, that's the biggest issue, not they're tall. Yes, there's some tall men today, but there's, there's, no, more, there's no more of them. How do you explain Matthew 24, 37, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man? What? Huh? You put it up there, but you never really said much about it at the very end. Oh, okay. Why are the days of Noah specifically linked to the Son of Man coming? They're linked in the demonic activity. During the time of Noah, we got this incursion from heaven that came down, you know, and mixed the races. At the time of Christ, demonic activity was very high. You know, people think that there's been demons around all the time bothering people. Where are you going to see that in the Scripture? You know, you see Genesis 6, and then where do you see demonic activity until you get to the New Testament? And all of a sudden, you got this full-blown, you know, demons fighting because we're getting near the end here, and they're afraid, and it's an all-out war. So I think that's the whole idea. He says, seems, some, seems like the days of Noah are specifically about the Nephilim. How does this link Jesus' coming? Again, the demonic activity... That's what links it, okay? And, and, again, in Matthew 24, it talks about that in the destruction, the stars are going to fall from heaven. That's not talking about bright lights in the sky. The stars are divine beings, and they're being judged at that time. It wasn't just, you know, okay, Jerusalem got destroyed. No, it was, a, it was the heavenly warfare, and it was wiped. In heaven there was warfare, on earth there was warfare, and God wiped them all out, and put us in a great spot. Why do you think the book of Enoch is not in the Bible? Because I don't think it's uh, a part of the... I got a message on it. I can't remember what I said. <laughs> Go back. I think it's called, is the book of Enoch scripture? But like I said, there are parts of Enoch that disagree with the Bible. Okay? Enoch talks about Sheol, and it talks about you know compartments, and it talks about suffering. That's not biblical. You will not find that in the Bible. Okay, so I think reasons like that cause people to say this this probably shouldn't be in there. Yes. But if it was in there, wouldn't we know about it then? You know what I mean? If it was in the Bible, because in the Ethiopian church, it's in there. Right. Yes, it is. Right. So heretics. Huh? <laughs> well, again, you know, again, there's controversy over that. Some people say, oh, yeah, it is inspired, and it should be in the Bible, and it isn't. In a, I, I personally, I don't think. My view is this <clears throat> if God wanted it in there, it'd be in there. I mean, simple. God's sovereign, isn't he? You think those books accidentally happened? Got in there, you know, uh, oh, man made decisions. Well, I think God gave us what he wanted us to have, and again, there's no contradiction in Scripture. So if you got books contradicting each other, you got a problem. And uh, these guys, the New Testament writers, quote it because it was very familiar at that time, but not everything in there I don't think is true. In Enoch I'm talking about, whereas I think with the Bible, everything in there is true. So that's why I think it's not in Scripture. How do you interpret the Scripture Revelation, whereas written, there will be no more sea? 
I don't know how that fits with today. I mean, we're just asking general questions here, I guess. But <laughs> C could refer to Gentiles, okay? C could refer to chaos, either way. The C to the ancient people was a symbol of chaos because it was the key, it was the opening to the underworld. Jews did not like the water. They didn't build houses on the water. They didn't like being on the boat. And that's when they're on, the disciples are on the boat and they see Yeshua walking on the water. They freak out because that's where the underworld comes into the, this world. All right, So they didn't like it. So the sea is a picture of chaos and it's also pictures Gentiles, I think. Okay? In other words, there's no more Gentiles now in the New Covenant. It's all God's people. It's not Jew and Gentile. Races have nothing to do with it. But there's also, there's no more chaos. Okay, God has settled it. Battle is over. Norm says, the hidden wisdom of God. Had they known it, they would have crucified the Lord of glory and thus no salvation. Exactly. That's a good passage there. You know, it, where it talks about the rulers of this world. Had they known, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. Because they, they, they fulfilled the plan when they did that. You know, they did exactly what God wanted them to do. And they're like, oh, we wouldn't have done that if we knew it was fulfilling the plan. And because the rulers of this world, see, I think you got human rulers, and above the human rulers, you had divine beings that were guarding them. All right, we see that through the, the, the prince of Persia. There's a, there's a watcher over the prince of Persia, and he's directing him. I think that's what Satan was over Rome during the time of the Roman Empire. He was the god of Rome. He was over top of them, directing their rulers. It's, it's a connection between heaven and earth. I already did that. So is it related to his first coming too? Now this is about the question of Matthew 24, 37, as it is in the days of Noah. Well, we take the first coming and the second coming, we separate them. The first coming and second is the Christ event. Christ came, 40 years later, it concluded. It was a transition period. It's one event, basically. Began with his first coming, ended when he returned, wiping everything out. So they are connected. All right, from Pentecost to Holy Cost, it's one event going on, that transition. 